<clears throat> so, so this week we're we're on week three of Nehemiah. We're, as you know, we're going through the book of Nehemiah, chapter by chapter. And last week I preached on the first half of Nehemiah. I mean, the first half of chapter two. Uh, so it was verses one through ten. This week we'll be moving on to the second half of chapter two. And as I was preparing this message, I I started doing a little bit of research, and I was um, playing around on the internet, and I went to um, a, a magnificent website called Amazon.com. I, I have to. I, this is not a shameless plug, but I really do like Amazon. I'm I'm kind of sold on it. But anyway, uh, so as I was going through and thinking about this message, I I looked up. I, I typed in the search under books. I typed in how many books have step S T E P step in the title. And there was over 147,000 books with step in the title. So, you know, I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, okay, well, that's a lot. That's a lot of books with step in the title. But I also know that not all of them are going to be like self-help books or anything like that. So I started narrowing it down a little bit. As I narrowed it down, I looked at self-help books. And there was over 10,000 self-help books with step in the title, like five steps to whatever it is. And I looked under business and money management, and there is 11,000 books that have step in the title for money management and business. Uh, parenting had over 3,000. Christian books have 2,900, a little over 2,900. So I looked at parenting and relationships, and I found some really interesting titles. Uh, there was over 7,400 books in parenting and relationships that have step in the title. One of them is this, Fix Your Marriage, Eight-Step Marriage Rescue Plan When Your Marriage is Falling Apart. Uh, one of my favorites, The ADHD Effect on Marriage, Understanding and Rebuilding Your Relationship in Six Simple Steps. If you know anything about ADHD, it's not going to take you six steps. Maybe 60 steps, but not six. Okay. How to Save Your Marriage in Three Simple Steps. Now, and this, this next one is my personal favorite. I, I couldn't stop laughing when I read this. Marriage counseling. Your marriage sucks and you know it. Nine simple steps to solve your marriage problems, even if your spouse don't know it. Or don't want to. I'm sorry, don't want to. That, i got to get this book and just see what it's about because that just is too much. See, steps, you know, we're in this culture of steps, you know, Five steps, even in preaching, a lot, of, a lot of pastors will do, you know, nine steps to, you know, to improve your, your prayer life, or seven steps to financial freedom in ministry, or, you know, it's six steps to become an outstanding preacher. I mean, there's all kinds of them. Some of them are, you know, here's some, you know, take your lid off your church, six steps to building a healthy senior leadership team. Uh, powerhouse, a step-by-step -step guide to building a church that prays. I mean, they're all over the place in ministry. 30 steps to heaven, 17 steps to heaven. Which one is it, 17 or 30? Well, see, I only know one step to heaven, that's to Jesus. But 13 or 7, 10 steps to church growth, a 12-step approach to the spiritual exercises of St. Anicius. I mean, there's steps everywhere. Steps to do this or steps to do that. Forbes magazine wrote an article, Why, think, why Thinking Small is the Secret to Big Success. They say that you've got to decide what you want, proclaim your dream to others and family, set a deadline, build down, or break down the goal into smaller steps, identify someone who's accomplished 
a similar goal and model their attitude and belief system, believe it is possible, take massive action, and repeat steps six and seven. This is according to their magazine. This is the, the, the secret to success is to break things down into a simple formula to do things. Now, if you notice on the screen there, there's a, I put a little caption. Some of those make a lot of sense. They do. You know, breaking down, deciding what you want. If you, if you, go, you, you, you want to see the children's ministry grow, you go to God in prayer, and, and He helps you figure out direction. That's kind of vision, right? Proclaim your dream, that support. You tell others, right? Hey, I, I really want to uh, grow this or go evangelize or whatever it may be. And you share that with others and you gain support. You set a deadline so you, you're planning things. See, all these are very good ideas. But see, this, is, this list leaves out a few key things. It's missing a few key things. Last week, we, as I, was, uh, I mentioned my grandfather, my, my granddaddy Blythe. And he built this airplane up there. Built this from his garage and, and with his bare hands. He, he, he built it and, and sanded the wings and sanded things in the garage. And I remember building sections and helping him. You know, he built the sections. I just sanded, really. But I remember he had to pull it out of the garage in different sections and put it on a trailer, a big, you know, 8 by, I don't know, 15 foot trailer, this huge trailer to, to haul it out to the, to the airport to put it together. And he used, he had uh, specific tools in his, in his thing, you know, in his, in his mind. You know, he used specific tools. He had a set of plans. He, he learned as he went. These are things that we talked about last week. He didn't have all the tools, but he built them as he needed. He was patient. It took him years to build it. He knew what he was working toward. He had vision. He believed he can do it. He had faith. And it was all done. He had faith that it would fly. Either that or he was really scared when he was taken off that first time. But he had some faith that it would fly, that he did the job right. In order to complete a project or achieve certain goals in life, we have to have the right tools and we have to have the right plans. You know, we, have, we have to work towards certain things. We, we have to have some kind of idea of what we're doing. You know, last week what we learned is we learned about being patient. We learned about trusting and we learned about prayer, trusting that God would, would fulfill his commitments and be who he is, trusting in the Lord, trusting, and we also have prayer and direction and guidance. We we talked about planning. We talked about as, as God blesses the efforts and blesses things, we give him the glory and we testify about what he did. See, now it's time that Nehemiah moves on to the next step. Now he's he's arrived in Jerusalem. Now there's specific tasks that he's going to do. Specific things that he needs to do in order to, to complete this project that God has put before him. Now it's time to learn about what, how, God, how he put things into action. There's an old story about um, three frogs sitting on a log. One of them decides to jump in. How many frogs are left? Anybody? Three frogs sitting on a log. One of them decides to jump in. How many are left? Two? How many say two? Raise your hand. How many say three? Three. Making a decision didn't do anything. It's got to be followed up with action. Tricked you. So now we're going to look at some specific action. We're going to look at some things that we actually can do when we have the tools and we have the plans. Now we're going to put it into action. So let's take a look at, at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. 
11 through 20, and it will be up on the screen, so please follow along. So I arrived in Jerusalem three days later. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So through, though it was still dark, I went up to Kidron, uh, Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered the gate again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there and what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of, Jer- of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me, and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. But, then, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of our plans, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father God, as we open up this, the, your word and we see the situation with Nehemiah and his plan and his task and what he, he first started out to do in this, in this story, Father God, open our hearts and our minds to your word and your will. We ask the Holy Spirit to be here today as we go through this and, and teach us, Lord. We want to submit to you and your leadership and your, your vision for Covington Baptist Church. And we just want you to fill us with the wisdom and the direction that you'd have us have. Open our hearts and our minds to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing that Nehemiah did is replenish his resources. We see that in verse 11. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he appreciated that his brother Hanani was uh, what he said and how the place was in rubble. He, he saw that and, and he, he saw the shattered walls and he was heartbroken. He was overwhelmed. And before he can examine closely, you, know, you look in verse 11, and see, you see that right in the beginning, he says he, he got there, and then three days later, he went and inspected the wall. Now, we don't know exactly what he did, so some of this, uh, what I'm going to mention, is a little bit of speculation, but, but put yourself in that situation. You're, you're traveling across a long countryside, and you're on this long road to travel, and, and you've been thinking about Jerusalem, and what's going to happen, and you've been in prayer. And now you arrive there. Do you just jump right in? Or do you pray? Or do you relax a little bit? He needed to take some time to rest and reflect. He needed to take some time to look at or or think about what what steps to make. So my assumption would be that he rested and relaxed a little bit before he jumped into the business. Now, I don't know about you, but but when when I'm tired, I don't make the best decisions. When I'm tired, I don't make very good decisions at all. I need to be rested and, 
and I need to reflect on things before I can move forward. So one of the first things I believe that he did was just rested. And knowing him, he probably sat in three days in prayer time. See, Elijah did it. He needed rest. Jesus used to go off by himself and rest. So it makes sense that he probably rested and replenished his resources. So here's the, here's the principle that we learned from this. Don't make decisions when you're tired and you haven't really rested for it. If you're going to make major decisions in your life, don't do it on, on when you're worn out because you'll end up making probably poor decisions. So the second, next thing as he did is as he rested a few days and then he went out forward and he, what did he do? He went around the wall and inspected it and he assessed the need. He assessed the need. After getting recharged, he, he assessed what was important and what needed to be done there. See, he never, he's never been there, right? He's never been to Jerusalem before. He was raised in another country, another city. See, we see in verses 12 through 16, Nehemiah knew that in order to lead this project, he would have to have a first-hand picture of what needed to be done. And when he scouted out the damage on the, at nighttime, he didn't tell anybody, and he went around, as the story tells, and he inspected the walls, inspected the gates, and took, took a look at everything with the moonlight showing the mounds of broken stone and diminished gates. He probably made some notes to himself, and he looked at it. Okay, this needs to be done. That needs to be done. All right, look at this over here. Oh, we got rubble here. Well, how are we going to get through? I couldn't even get through that one section because of the rubble there. So what am I going to do? He was assessing the importance and assessing what needed to be done. I think he discovered three things in this assessment as he was going through there. I think he looked at three specific things, and one of them is that it's going to be a demanding job. It's going to be a demanding job. He's looking at these, these walls, and these walls weren't small. The, the walls itself were more than a mile long. And the new wall needed to be three to four feet thick. That wasn't small. 15 to 20 feet high. So that's, that's a pretty big wall, right? It's not like our bricks outside. They're just small. I don't know how big they are. Four or five inches, maybe. I mean, this is a big, huge, fortified wall. That job is going to be demanding. And the same thing is true as we go to do God's work. As we move forward in our restoration here, our job is going to be demanding. There's going to be some work that's going to be, need to be done. And it's going to be a lot of work. But that's what's going to happen if we're going to do God's work. It's so worth our energy. The second thing he learned is that it was going to be a hazardous assignment. Nehemiah went at night because he knew that enemies were looking around. Notice that he didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell administration and priests, nobody. He told nobody because he knew the enemy was around and he didn't want to deal with that at that time. He knew that it would be hazardous, especially going out at night and he had enemies around. He said nothing to anyone until the time was right. The careless leakage of information might have brought an end to the, po- to the project. If we would have let that information out early, especially with the danger involved, people might have come and tried to stop him. The last, the last thing he learned is it was a cooperative project. It was only when surveying the walls 
and the gates that Nehemiah could calculate how the work should be done and who's going to help. It was only when he looked at it and said, look how big it was. He probably was calculating some things like, okay, well, here's some possibilities. And we'll learn later on in some of the verses uh, another day of, of how he managed the people. But he was calculating those things. And he knew that he was going to need help. This was too big for him and his small crew. See, in ministry terms, assessing the need, we call that uh, examining the context and also strategic planning. We're looking at going out into the community and we're assessing the needs. We're looking at what needs to be done here in Covington. We're looking at how can we help? We're just not pulling things out of the hat and saying, okay, let's just do this because it sounds good. We're looking at the needs of the community and saying, how can we as a church go out there and make a difference? It's called examining the context of the community. You can have limitless passion, strong doctrine, and a strong desire to reach others. You may even have an excellent written mission statement, which we have. But unless we understand the people and the issues and the community and the needs that they have as a whole, our efforts will be unsuccessful. We'll be doing things um, just for the sake of doing them, but we won't understand our community. Many churches have a tendency to do this. They have an expectation that as long as they go out in the community, they'll just come. They have this expectation that, that the community should conform to us. And we bring them to us and they should conform to how we do things. I'll give you an example of that. You take a, a, a contemporary worship church, right? Very like, like in New York City, you know, they got the electric guitars, they got the rock band type um, music, and it's just, it's very loud. And, and you take that, and you transport it and, into Wyoming. Now, if you haven't been to Wyoming, it is cowboy country. I mean, I, they're real cowboys. I know Texans think they're real cowboys, but Wyoming are really cowboys, okay? These guys wear spurs all the time. Go to, go to, they don't have 7-Elevens there. They just they hang out at the barns. I mean, they're really cowboys. You take a postmodern church and you put it in Wyoming, I guarantee it won't succeed. It's out of context. You take a, uh, a, a, a church. Now, I have a, a buddy who started a church called Sportsman's Church, and it's in Montana. And up on stage, you have, uh, he's got uh, stuffed turkeys, stuffed deer. He's got mounts, hunting mount, uh, you know, um, Deer mounts and elk mounts and everything up on the walls. So, uh, the church itself is made out of a, a log cabin. That makes sense in rural Montana, doesn't it? Makes sense. So we have to look at our community and we have to adjust ourselves for them. It's not the other way around. See, sometimes we preach and we talk uh, what I call Christianese. Anybody know what Christianese is? It's that language that we talk as Christians. Oh, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm blessed. Oh, I'm blessed. The Lord is good. Okay, that's a form of Christianese. Now, we talk about, you know, uh, uh, holiness or things like that. Those are words that a non-Christian is not going to know about. They don't know what that means. Sanctified. We talk about the rapture and maybe Bible study. People, non-Christians don't understand that. I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I'm just saying it's, 
that we have to understand our culture. As we get people in that are not, that are not Christians and they come to visit us, are we talking Christianese? Are we talking like regular talk and explaining these things to them? We're talking in a way that they can understand. In some communities, there are churches that use similar language but mean different things. I'll give you an example. I came from Idaho before here. There's a heavy Mormon culture there. They use things like saved by grace. But, they, but when you looked at their teachings, they don't believe that truly. But they say it. So their definitions are different. So knowing this is just an example of things, as, as we go on the community, we have to be aware of our culture here outside the, community, outside the church. And we need to adjust things so that we can reach people. We must study and learn the spiritual, economic, social status of our community and assess its needs. And then we as people can go out and understand how to reach people. We need to look at the spiritual condition. We need to look at the, if they're receptive to the gospel. We've got to look at the challenges. And we have to adjust. Not the other way around. We have to adjust. We're going to watch a video in just a second right now. And this video is an example of a church that did just that. They took a, they're in Detroit, and they looked at the needs of the people. And they said, you know what? We want to share the gospel. We want to be in the people's lives. We want to make a difference in people's lives. So we looked at the, what was needed out there, and we came up with a plan, and, a, and, and we adjusted ourselves to go out. And that's what they did. It's a fantastic story. Uh, let's go ahead and play it. Um, when I first came to Cornerstone, the community was once known as a war zone because of the drive-by shootings, the gang activity, uh, prostitution, a lot of homelessness. On average, the income is less than $16,000 a year, and so there's a great need. We are in a community where 97% of the children are coming from a single-family home. 58% of the grandparents are raising at least one grandchild. And so there's just great huge needs and huge gaps of services. So we engaged in doing a lot of community ministries geared towards meeting uh, the community at a point of a felt need as a way of bridging uh, the gap to their real need. And so all of our ministries are evangelistically focused and really geared towards um, not only meeting the physical needs of people, but also connecting them to their spiritual needs. So what we attempt to do is because our community, our church is in a community that has huge need, and a lot of times in suburban churches, uh, there are uh, resources available connecting those two. And so we've been real thankful and blessed that churches have found favor with what we're trying to do in this particular community. And um, networking with them has allowed us to do a number of ministries at Cornerstone that we otherwise would not have the resources to be able to do. There are about 10 churches that serve down here and that have become a part. And so we've given them Saturdays that they can serve and Thursdays when they can serve. The primary purpose of my job is to get the people out of the pews and help them have an awesome opportunity to serve the Lord so that they can develop their life into a fully developing follower by getting into missions. Everything we start, we find a life group or another church to take leadership. Our life group uh, comes down here. There's probably an average of about 15 of us come down. We're down here probably about three hours. 
and there are other groups that do the same thing on different days. We give people clothes and blankets, coats, and um, I just feel fulfilled every Thursday. I think I get more out of it than maybe they do. I really enjoy it. My husband and I went home, cleaned out our closets, got our kids, everybody clean out what you've got, old jeans, anything you've got, bring it, and let's do it. And it wasn't necessarily that it was stuff that we didn't need. It's stuff that we didn't use that often and somebody else could use. It was a greater need. The more opportunities that I've had to serve God, um, especially through other people, the more I actually am blessed and get to learn. Um, I just uh, find that when, when we think we're helping, God's actually teaching us things. Every life should have something uh, other than just sit in class and say, feel me, you know. To get out and uh, be a part of the community. As we serve together as a life group up there, uh, we get to know each other better, and uh, you know, it helps you to become closer as a group. There was a call for volunteers to uh, come work this uh, dental clinic. And as a Christian, I think it's extremely important that those of us who have been given a lot, that we have the opportunity to be able to give to others who are in need. There's patients here that are you know, people from around this neighborhood that aren't fortunate enough to be able to afford dental work. And they get in a predicament where they have an emergency situation. And what we do is we help them, we pray for them, and we take out their bad tooth. You know, when you meet those physical needs and you're able to get someone out of pain, which is a powerful thing, it just opens their heart up to listening. That's a tremendous feeling when... We know we are doing something that's God's work, and we're also doing something that's benefiting these folks. That, to me, that's worth more than money. They're so concerned that it's going to hurt, and they're so concerned that they're not going to do well in the chair. And you get in there, you pray with them, you hold their hands, and you tell them it's going to be all right. We've had great response from the community in terms of Cornerstone being the church in this neighborhood. And it's in line with our passion to develop indigenous leadership. And so they understand our heart for uh, serving the neighborhood. And, of course, by having come through the ministry, there's their way of paying it forward, of giving back to their neighborhood. I know how it is to be out there homeless in the struggle, not eating. That's why I come out and like to serve. Um, while I was in my addiction, you know, Cornerstone always had a place for me to shower, somewhere to put clothes on my back when I didn't have it. A chapel to sit in while it was cold outside, and, and they've always helped me out. I volunteer because um, it helps me out seeing people on the other side where I've been, you know, in addiction for many years, and to pray with them and fellowship with them and, and let them know that there is a way out of it. Coming out into a church like that, they'll just be willing to take me under the wings, even in, in the past as I was a drug addict, abuser, and everything I did. It just took me in. It felt actually some, someone really cared about me. We are really, we really want the community to see this as their church and, and their ministry and not our church and our ministry. And uh, over the years, we've seen that transition take place where the community feels like this is their church. What do you think? Not too bad? I love what he said at the end. I want this church to be a church the community feels it's their church. That's the direction we're moving. We're going to look at the community. We're going to see what the needs are. And if you want to be involved in this, 
And it's not, we're not going to copy these guys exactly. We're, we're going to go out and we're going to find our needs in this community and we're going to assess it and we're going to see how we can help. We're going to try to make a difference. Jesus doesn't want us sitting on the sidelines. He wants us involved. And I really believe this church wants to do that. I've talked to a lot of you guys and a lot of you have shared that desire to get out and do something for God. So I loved what he said. A church that the community feels it's their church. And if you want to be involved in that, definitely come to the meeting next Sunday after church. So the next task that he did was he was prospecting. After replenishing his resources and assessing his need, Nehemiah now recruited workers. As he looked at the wall and he saw the things that needed to get done, he knew that he couldn't do it by himself, and he started seeking help. He started planning that. In some way, not mentioned in the narrative, Nehemiah gathered a large group of people, and he looked at them, and he started putting their workforce together. And he, at first he identifies with the workers. He said to them, see the trouble we're in? Do you see the trouble we're in? Nehemiah is passionately involved in the city's welfare and needs it to be acutely, and its needs as acutely as though he has been living in the city his whole life. He looks as he goes around. See, he wasn't from there. So as he goes around and he sees this, he's passionate about it. He has this dark, this deep desire to make a difference. He looks at the needs and, he's, and he wants to do something about it. He's passionately involved in the city's welfare. The second thing he sees is a spiritual, he presents the spiritual perspectives. As he gathers this group, he mentions the needs. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see the needs? Do you see the trouble we're in? Do you see our community, how hurting it is? Many of you have mentioned that there's a major drug problem here in Allegheny County. Do you see the hurt out there? There's a need. And we need to do something about it. So he, Nehemiah identifies the workers. Who sees the problem? Do you see the trouble we're in? And he moves on and he looks at the spiritual perspectives. They're in trouble, and it's not just because Jerusalem is in ruins. He sees their spiritual disgrace. The sight of those collapsed walls for well over a century has created this impression in the pagan mind that God of Israel has abandoned its people. That's the way that other people are looking at him. He recognizes that there are always spiritual issues involved in a building project. It's more a building project is more than just brick and mortar or tasks. There's always a spiritual element on it. As we go out in the community and we start doing things, whatever it is, as we get out the outside these walls, there's always a spiritual factor involved. As his people, as God's people. We have to be aware of the spiritual opportunities and challenges as they present themselves to us. As we go out and meet the needs of the people, we need to be able to show them Christ. And the third thing is he invites immediate action. So he identifies the people, he recognizes the spiritual element in it, and then he brings immediate action, invites immediate action. Everybody knew exactly what was required. And he says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so we are no longer in disgrace. Come on, let's, let's go do this. Let's move forward. 
And everyone realizes that the task must begin without further delay. They were motivated. They knew that they needed to start immediately. Nehemiah is asking a lot of people. Nehemiah assessed the situation. He knew how big of a task this would be. He's not afraid to ask them to step up to the plate. The sacrifices will be huge. They will have to take time off of work to rebuild this wall. They will have to put in labor and hard work to rebuild this wall. They will have to protect their families against the enemies to rebuild this wall. There will be sacrifices that will need to be done. Before people can respond, they need to know there is someone greater than Nehemiah behind the project. And that leads us to the next task. Inspired confidence. Nehemiah inspired confidence in the people in verse 18. He, showed, he gave them confidence because of who was involved in the project. It wasn't Nehemiah just doing it. It was God involved in it. While rebuilding the walls is an important job, the central theme of this whole book is the sufficiency of God. And his mind dwells on the greatness of God and wants his workers to do the same. He, he, he brings this up. He, he directs them to God. As we move in a time of restoration here, the outreach ministry is important, but the central theme should be the sufficiency of God. You have to look at how God is involved in this. Listen to Nehemiah's testimony. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king has said. He brings it right back to God and says, look, God helped me. God orchestrated this. He created, he probably told him a few of the details. God gave him an opportunity to talk to this king. God put it on the king's heart to help Nehemiah. God provided all the resources to be able to do the project. Even gave him the letters, gave him the materials, everything. Even sent them down. Made him the governor of, of Jerusalem. Gave him the authority to do it. This is all what God has done through this king and through Nehemiah. So he testifies. Look at the glory of God, of what, how God has done these things. He didn't reach Jerusalem because he was a skilled persuader. Or because the, maybe the queen was, a sympath, you know, was sympathetic because of the heritage there. Or, or because the, the king was a generous benefactor and said, oh, I like you, Nehemiah. Here, let me just donate enough money to, for you to do this. He, did, he succeeded because God is sovereign. And God keeps his promises. And God wants his people gathered together. Since God had done all that, he would certainly help them complete this, the task of rebuilding this wall. By telling the people what God had already done, he was, the people were getting excited. They saw with the glory of God. And see, they were, they were not like that before. They felt probably abandoned themselves. The spiritual condition of the people were not lively and weren't excited. Nehemiah points to it and says, look, here's a testimony, and now the people are getting fired up. They're getting excited. I'm looking forward to the day when you guys um, start. You see some of these uh, some of these outreach things um, go on, and and you see people coming to Christ, and we start getting baptized. And I know you guys are going to get fired up. You're going to get excited. You're going to you're going to feel it. You're going to be so excited about it. You're going to look forward to coming to church every Sunday even more so because you're seeing God work, and that's what's happening there. Nehemiah is pointing. Look, here's the testimony. This is what God is doing. 
his appeal was positive as he focused on the glory and greatness of God. When you think about it, it's amazing that the people said, let us start rebuilding. See, as he brought that up, he turned around and said, and the people said, yes, let us start building. They are on board. They're excited. They're willing to do it. Because remember, in the previous, we talked about this in the first week, the people quit. The, the, they were getting discouraged. And then the, then the king got a, letter, or got a letter and he decided to quit all building. So they were just very discouraged about the whole thing. Now Nehemiah's here and he's shown how God is working and they got excited and said, yes, we're on board. We'll do this. We often face those same two obstacles in church. We either were content the way we were or we've tried that before. I'm thinking that this church responds much like the wall builders did in this chapter. Since I've been here, I've brought up things, changes, and, and I've mentioned different things, and we've moved forward with, with new things. And you guys have all been very supportive. See, when I look at this church, I don't see um, people that are griping and complaining. I see people that are excited for the future of Covington Baptist. I see people that, that are on board and saying, yes, let's try new things. And you guys, when I look at you and, and I hear your, your excitement, it's exciting to me. I'm excited to see how God is going to work here and work in your lives as we go to rebuild our wall and we have our time of restoration. I'm excited for you. You know why? Because you guys, your lives are going to transform. You're, you're going you're to see things. You're going to witness God working in the lives of others and you're going to be excited about it. You can be excited to see God work in the lives of others and your willingness to be part of that and part of what God is doing. Last week, Teresa and I had a very productive week and, and we were very busy and we met with Sarah from Dolly Ann. And Dolly Ann Apartments, um, there have been some talk before. This is the first time I met with her and I'm excited. This is an opportunity for us to be able to serve our community. And, and I'm excited to see us move forward toward that. So come next week and learn a little bit more about it and what I'm talking about. But it's going to be exciting because as we do this, you guys get to witness things. One of the video that we watched, some of that life group, and as they were talking during this life group, one of the things they said is, you know, we, we there's a, I forget her name, it was a blonde young lady that said, you know, as we, we thought we were serving them, but then as we were doing this, we learned a lot. We grew See, that's the funny thing about ministry. When you're out serving and you're doing God's work, He changes you through that. As we serve Dolly Ann and we go out there, as that's the first step, I guarantee we're going to be changed and moved by this. Someone once defined leadership as this, the art of getting people to do what they ought to do because they want to do it. I'm honored to be here. I'm honored that you guys selected me as your pastor. I'm very proud of that. I'm very happy about that. And I want to do everything I can do to help you do what you ought to do. And then to serve. I'm going to do everything I can to give you as many opportunities to serve our community and to serve each other. That's my job is to equip the people. And I'm honored to have that time. And I pray, my prayers all the time is that God's gracious hand would be upon us to be able to go and serve the community. 
Which leads us to our fifth task. The fifth task comes almost immediately after the decision is made to impact the community or in, uh, make a difference. As Nehemiah rallies the people, he sees the people, and they're, they're getting excited and say, yes, we'll go. That leads us naturally to the fifth task, which is handling opposition. Whenever we get serious about kingdom work, whenever we get serious about doing things for God, the enemy comes out. Spiritual enemies, people, the enemy comes out. The first two enemies have been identified in verse 10. Samballot, Tobiah were joined by Geshem the Arab. And in verse 10, the, the opponents were very much disturbed. See, as the, as the people were, as Nehemiah assessed everything and he mentioned some things about what God is doing and he's excited and the people are starting to excited and said, yes, we're going to go. Guess what's going to happen? We're going to have people and the enemy fighting against us. The devil doesn't want us to succeed. The devil does not want us to move forward with kingdom work. He doesn't. And he will do everything in his power to keep us from doing it. And he will oppose us through other people, through situations, through circumstances, and he will oppose us. And so we need to learn, we need to understand this. This is a reality. We're in a spiritual warfare here. And we're in a battle. And if we're going to start doing kingdom work, that's when it wakes up the enemy. Because he doesn't want that to happen. And we see that in prime example of Sambal and Tobiah and Geshem. As, they, as Nehemiah rallies these people, what happens? They are disturbed. They were upset. They were bothered. Because they're the ones that wrote that letter to the king and stopped the work in the first place. So they're a little angry, a little ticked off. Now this troublesome trio becomes highly vocal in their attacks on Nehemiah and his work crew. Now let's take a look for a second at, at their tactics. So first is they derailed the efforts of the workers. They mocked, in verse 19, they mocked and ridiculed them. See, that's slander. See, when we start doing God's work, you'll hear people say, oh, you're just a Bible thumper. When you start doing God's work, oh, you're just a holy roller. Or they'll slander you. Oh, he, you know, oh he's a hypocrite or she's a hypocrite. He, he doesn't walk the Christian life the way they should. He doesn't pre walk the way he preaches. You're going to get slandered. You're going to get attacked. It's going to happen. Verbal onslaughts have always been part of the enemy's demoralizing tactics. They laughed at the workers and they belittled both their resources and their plans. They made fun of them. They tried to stop them discouraged them. The second is they suggested that they were rebelling against the king. That weapon worked once back in Ezra chapter 4. He says, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Ezra chapter 4. This was a harsh allegations during that time because if you were rebelling against the king, you're gonna, you could lose your life. I mean, it's a major thing. Like in our days, an equi uh, equivalent for that is, is somebody giving you false testimony to the law enforcement or courts or something. Lying to get you in trouble. And that's what they're doing. They're saying, are you rebelling against the king? Hey, you rebel against the king. Even the, even the mention of that could be a serious problem for them. I love how Nehemiah deals with these bad guys. He doesn't answer their lies, engage in a conversation with them, nor does he just ignore them. His first he first exalts God who called him to do the work. And we see that in verse 20. Verse 20 says, the God of heaven will give us success. As people go and try to stop us from doing God's kingdom 
As you find opposition in your life, you go straight to God. God will give us success. God is blessing us. If I'm doing God's work, He will bless it. He wasn't concerned about the fictitious implications. He wasn't concerned that God, uh, that of anything else, but the only thing he was concerned about is that God got glory for everything they were doing. Nehemiah wanted his people to know that God had everything in control. Even though Geshem controlled the southern approach to the city, and the other two thugs patrolled the north and the east, Nehemiah wasn't worried. He wanted to give God the glory, and he focused his energy on God. In his reply, he made three things clear. Rebuilding the wall was God's work. The Jews were his servants, and the opposition had no part in it. This had nothing to do with them. As we go in our time of restoration, we're going to have those oppositions. We need to give God the glory and not worry about them. Not worry about them. People say, oh, Covington Baptist Church, and they fill in the blank. They say something negative, and they try to slander us. It's okay. God gets the glory. Always remember, God gets the glory. The last part of verse 20 says it rather strongly. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem, no claim, or no historic right. You have no, why am I listening to you? You're, you have nothing to do with this. As people slander Covington or, or, or oppose or anything that happens in the future, as we go toward building God's kingdom, as the enemy attacks, all we have to do is respond and say, God, you're giving us the glory. You're, you're, I want to give you the glory. We want to move forward with you. You're the one who's instituting this. And you guys, you enemy, you have nothing to do with this. Nothing at all. This is not for you. You have no right, no claim to this. Let me just say that as believers, we should expect spiritual opposition, and we should even be thankful for it. I do not want you to encourage it, but when we do get those times, those moments where we're opposed, see, they persecuted Jesus. They've been persecuting God's people all through history. And, if we're, and we should be thankful. When we get that opposition, you know what? I must be doing God's work because I'm getting opposed. It's a sign that we've angered the enemy and invaded some territory where he thinks it's his. If there's no conflict or opposition, then you're not engaging the enemy enough. We're not doing enough God's work. Because it will happen. I guarantee it. I've had it happen in my life. Spiritual attacks, depressions, different things that have happened in my life and the lives of friends and family because they were doing God's work and the enemy came in and tried to stop it. I can share story after story after story of things like that. See, remember, Satan only targets and shoots at moving targets. If you're moving forward with the kingdom of work, that's who he's going to target. If you're standing still, not doing anything, in his eyes, you're safe. You're good. Because you're not work doing God's work. But if you're moving along, that's where he's trying. Last week, we discussed the tools needed, waiting or patience, trusting, praying, planning, and testifying. 
This week we see the task that he carried, Nehemiah carried out. He replenished his resources. He assessed the need. He inspired confidence in the people. And he handled the opposition. Are you ready to pick up your tools? Are you ready to pick up your tools and start completing the task that God has for you? Next week's outreach ministry. It's the first an opportunity for you to pick up those tools and get involved. I hope to see you there. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for Nehemiah and his just such an amazing example of how he handled these this time of rebuilding and this time of of restoration for the, the wall in Jerusalem. And he rallied the people. He understood that it wasn't just about, about building a wall. Just like it's not just about filling this church with a bunch of people. There's a spiritual factor involved. And it's, and it's bringing people back to you, Lord. And so as we go out and, and reach out to the community, as we, as we minister to people outside our walls, help us always remember, Lord, that it's, it's about you. We provide food or we provide some service or, or something out there, some opportunity to serve, Lord. Let's never forget. Never forget that it's all about glorifying you in that. We serve so we can share Christ. Father God, we thank you so much for Nehemiah and his example for this. And, and uh, we, we talk about him for so many years later. And he's still such an inspiration for us as we go through our time of rebuilding. So I ask you, Lord, to continue to work in the life of this church. They love you, Lord, and, and they have a desire to serve you. Help them be excited. We ask the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of each and every one of us here as we move forward in serving you and serving this community. Father God, thank you so much. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.